Welcome to my den. This is a fun episode with Sean Nason, former Disney Imagineer and now the best-selling author of Kiss Your Dragons, Radical Relationships, Bold Heart Sets, and Changing the World. In this episode, we get to go on a journey behind the scenes to look at what it's like to be a Disney Imagineer and even being on the team that finances acquisitions like ESPN and new rides all at Disney World. Sean's got a really interesting story that he walks us through today. He's been everything from a pastor to a professional musician, and now he helps companies increase eight to nine figures in revenue through improved customer and employee experience. If you enjoy today's episode, I'd highly recommend you check out Kiss Your Dragons. It's a fun book that's written in a very untraditional business style. It's on his website, seannason.com forward slash kiss your dragons. Without further ado, let's get into this fun episode. So hang on to your seats or your time machines if you're cool like that. And join me in my living room with the amazing Sean Nason. You're listening to Native Digital, Native Analog, the show where we unpack the collisions and commonalities between my generation and yours. I believe that if you don't have a Native Digital on your board of directors, your leadership team, or at least one you pay to pester you like a fly in your ear, your business won't survive. Let's change that today. How long has it been? Like six months we've been trying to pull we've this off? We've been trying to do this forever. Yeah. Oh my Unreal. gosh. How have you been though? Good. How are you? I'm good. I So crazy story. My husband and I decided that in a couple of months, we're going to go live in South America for a few months. We want to get out of tech, America, all the stress, all the, you know, all that jazz and go live in South America and go backpacking. So we're going to be doing that in a few months. So what are you going to do with your business? Well, it's going to be put on pause. <laughs> um, I, I'm working on the, um, I just launched an academy. So yeah. the online academy is cohort based. So I can do that online while I'm there um, if I want to. And if not, then I'll just schedule the next uh, next cohort to land after that in October, after we get back. So anyway, lots of changes in my you, life. How long are you guys going for? Uh, probably be about three months. Wow. Where yeah. at? We're thinking right now, um, Argentina, like the Argentina, Chile border. And so maybe the Patagonia area. And then also, probably go go to somewhere closer to the equator since it'll be you know their winter so probably a caribbean island or some part of mexico and then somewhere in the middle of those maybe peru or ecuador so we'll just move like one country to another so we'll see you know it if i didn't have children i would be doing the same thing i hear ya i am so done like <laughs> Is it, my wife and I were just talking about it. Like, I'm just, if it were, in, you know, our son has autism. Mm -hmm. The schooling for him is not as, you know, but my daughter's in seventh 
going into eighth, but we've just made some decisions. Like, you know, I, I grew up in a family where, you know, education was important, but life experiences were just as important, if not more important. Um, so I didn't grow up in a family where, you know, my parents didn't expect me to keep a 4.0. Um, my advantage is I was really uh, talented in uh, music. So like by, by the middle of my junior year, I already knew where I was going to college. I had full right scholarships, you know. Um, and so I, we kind of made a decision with our daughter, like, listen, and she's got some learning challenges. We're like, if you keep a C or better, um, then we're fine. So she brought a 3.2 home this past quarter. But, you know, like we took our kids out of school for a week and went on a cruise. And, you know, last weekend or last week I took her out and we went to March Madness. And it's just I, I'm just like the stress that is on families and on people right now is unreal. So, yeah, no kidding. No kidding. And and that's what made us want to say, you know what, even if we put a, a pin in making money, you know, get growing, whatever, it doesn't matter because at the end of the day, this, this experience is what matters, right? <laughs> what does he do? Um, he's an analyst, so he okay. can take his work to South America. And that's probably what we're going to do is just find somewhere with high-speed internet. There's so many places with remote working cafes, or um, I guess where he, he needs enough internet to be able to do data processing from a remote server here in the US. So we're trying to figure out the tech side, but it looks like if he's just got, you know, 10, 10 megabit, you know, <laughs> 10 megabits of internet, um, he should be fine. So we're just gonna try to stay close to areas that have, you know, uh, shared co-working spaces or in case there's an outage. And are you guys going to do like an Airbnb or what? Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, it's actually pretty cool. We, we got a, well, I'll show you this. There's some nice shit in Argentina or whatever for super cheap. Well, and um, if you, I didn't know if you were doing Costa Rica. I have a very dear friend, like a brother to me. They, they have a place in Costa Rica and if it's not rented, you know, and they put high speed internet in. They're from oh, Canada. Amazing. They're they're from Canada. And uh yeah, like last fall they took their kids out of school and just went down to Costa Rica for six months. That is awesome. So cool. Yeah, if they oh, I don't yeah, know where theirs is, but look, this is nine hundred and fifty dollars per month for a two bedroom unit with high speed internet in a farm area they've got like a garden outside it's right on the lake with a little adobe oven or like a yeah. it's like a mirror i'm pointing to the side but they've got like a little fireplace it's got like a patio area 950 dollars a month like so anyway it's just it's insane like the types of things that are there and like i've i've traveled um, in Central America uh, for quite a bit of time. And, you know, it's hard, it's hard to find internet sometimes, but 
good grief that it's beautiful. It is so stress relieving. So anyway, that is. So what are you guys going to do with your place there? So we actually currently rent out half of our house because we house hack. So we can, our mortgage is paid for by our renters. So we just will leave them here and leave all our stuff here and we can, we can just make it work. Well, awesome. Yeah. Gen Z or anyway, enough about me and my, my gallivanting, but I, um, I, yeah, it's, it's going to be cool. It's going to be so refreshing. But I'm so glad we're getting to do this. And are you going to pause with the podcast and all then? Or are you just... I will probably try to pre-record um, a bunch of episodes is the goal. So, we'll, you know, I guess it'll be 12 episodes in advance. I'll need to record. Shouldn't yeah. be too bad. Listen, that's <laughs> how I've done all of mine. Yeah. I record every season in two days. Oh, that's awesome. You just pack them back to back? Yeah, we literally, you know... I can do 15 episodes in two days. Is this for Combustion Chronicles? Mm-hmm. Okay, cool. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, we will we will get it starting at, you know, I get, what we do is we rent a, I rent an Airbnb, and Michael goes with me, um, and, you know, we get, we try to do seven a mm-hmm. day, six to seven a day if we, um, and it's it's the best way for me to do podcasting. I, the the you know a hour here one day, an hour here another day. I just I can't do it. That's um, a really great idea. And it what makes it difficult though is you can't talk about like really really like current current event stuff, right? Because you're you're doing three months, right? So. Um, it, that makes it, but when, you know, like we talk about the experience ecosystem, we know about that. And I know what, how to ask a question, even if they're on current, you know, like, Hey, mm-hmm. I read recently, blah, 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 blah. Right. Right. Well, it makes sense. I mean, I actually just had uh, the episode that's coming out this week is with Christopher Lockhead. And he and I got at the end of our discussion, which was, you know we recorded several weeks ago, we were talking about Ukraine and Russia because it was happening right then. So, I mean, it's coming out this week, so it's still relevant. But the point being, I'm having to release his episode very quickly. Everybody else, I'm recording, you know, eight to 10 weeks in advance. So it's, it's a little bit different, but I'm so yeah. grateful we got to dive into that a little bit. And, you know, because... This on the show, nothing is taboo. We're we're literally talking about everything from, you know, politics to religion to culture to uh, economic status to literally everything. So that's what I love about it. But uh, anyway, I'm already recording. So this is an authentic dialogue podcast. So who knows? We might keep all we might keep all this. We might keep all of it. (laughs) Um, But so do you have a hard stop right at? Four? Yes. Okay. Yeah. All right. We will. Well, then we will definitely use this because this will be our authentic dialogue right here. Um, okay. So I've been on, you know, Friday, Friday Live several mm-hmm. times and we've had a few conversations, but 
I've never had a chance to just grill you, <laughs> like get to, <laughs> get to know you. And I know you've got, you know, two children um, and remind me their names. Um, Kayla is 13 and Colby, he is six. Okay. Kayla and Colby. Are they both with K's? They are both with K's. We, oh, I love that. We, uh, what's funny is my wife's name is Carla and hers is with the C. And I said to her, why didn't we do C's? How, how can we do K's? But yeah. <laughs> <laughs> hey, that works. Then you're the odd man out with the That's the right. S and then I'm Sean. You know, we have all the K's and C stuff and then me. So hey, at least you didn't do what the Duggars did and have 20 children and have them all with J's. Yeah, I don't even know how they even remotely did that. <laughs> I think at some point you're just forcing it. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Like yeah. Ginger with a J or isn't one of them named Ginger? Yeah, it, there there's some that are really different. And I'm like, that's just making it happen. So. <laughs> <laughs> you just have to do what you got to do, right? Got to do what you got to do. <laughs> but seriously, tell, tell me more that I don't tell me what I don't know about your story. And maybe even heck things you don't get to talk about on, on shows or podcasts all the time because they're just, you know, too amazing and people just want to focus on what's easy. Yeah, you know, so I think a, a big thing for me, Hannah, that that not everyone knows is, you know, I am a firm believer in following your passions um, and following your passions for what they are today. Um, and sometimes that can be really frustrating um, and frustrating if you're in a relationship or married and, you know, married with children. Um, I think uh, I'm in my fifth career in my life. So I was a professional musician, um, traveled professionally for years, got bored with that. Um, that's when I went to work for the Walt Disney Company. Um, and, you know, when I tell people I worked for Disney, the first thing they said is, well, where did you perform? And I said, I didn't. I was bored with music. Um, so I actually went into finance, which is a really interesting transition for people that don't understand music and finance, because music is nothing more than numbers. Um, and so if you can do numbers and music, um, then you can really do numbers um, with finance. And I was really a natural at it. And uh, so that's when I went to work for the Walt Disney Company. Um, was very privileged and honored to work for Disney Cruise Line um, and then to become a Walt Disney Imagineer in my life. Um, and not very many people get to say, get to do that. I definitely, definitely want to get to know more about that. But first off, so I had no idea you were a professional musician. What did you, what did you play? What did you do? Yes. Yeah, so I studied um, piano and voice. Um, so um, have a jazz background um, in that. Um, and I traveled actually professionally in the Christian music field. Um, and uh, when actually, actually, when I left that, I will actually say I went into my, that's where my second career really came in, not even, be, even before Disney. Then my wife and I became pastors. Um, so I had grown up in the church. She had grown up in the church. Um, so we had both become um, she was actually a pastor's kid, um, so we became pastors. And after 10 years of doing that as a couple um, is when I went to work for the Walt Disney Company because we had been trying to have children and uh, weren't able to conceive. And um, if you know anything about church work, it consumes your whole life. 
Um, and we just really felt as a couple, we needed to focus on us and um, having a child. Um, and so that's, we were living in Orlando, Florida. Um, and that's when I went to work for Disney and she went to work for a hospital system there. Um, and I actually tell people all the time, I owe Disney um, uh, my life in so many ways because um, Disney takes such good care of their cast members um, that they paid for our adoption um, of our daughter. Um, and that's wow. just, uh, yeah, that's just unheard of, um, really, from companies. And um, I was one of the, you know, Disney was one of the first um, companies in the country that gave um, paternal leave. Um, so I got to take um, the first 12 weeks off with our daughter. Um and so, uh, yeah, I mean, it was an amazing company to work for. Um, and then to be a Walt Disney Imagineer, um, you know, there's very few of those um, in the world. Um, yes. And hold on, Chung, because I want to get to that. But I, I just I need to know more about the story because so much of this is making sense now. Why we even connected, because I also studied piano and voice, oh. not in college, but my mom was a she studied voice in college and then was invited on a an opera tour of Europe, but decided to stay here and get married. So when I was really young, like three years old, I think it was I was in my first opera as like, was like Madam Butterfly. And I was the little, I forget, I don't even know the character's name now, but the little kid in the opera. Um, but so that's fascinating to me. So did you study piano and voice exclusively in jazz or, or did you kind of jump different genres? So, um, I, I'm actually a prodigy. You're actually, I love this. Yes. Tell me. Um, so I never, um, I was 12, so I come from a very musical family. Okay. Uh, my brother, uh, so my mother um, actually pretty well chose like your mother. Um, she uh -huh. chose to um, not be a professional um, and have a family. Uh, and then my brother had a full ride music scholarship. He's six years older than me. So his freshman year, um, in college was my sixth grade year. Um, and up until that point in my life, I had in, inspired to be a football player. Um, and in my sixth grade year out on the football field, I had a double compound fracture um, and was told I was never going to walk again, possibly. Spent 11 months in um, a cast. Um, and uh, one night... So I was, you know, 11 years old, I think. Um, one night I got up and my brother had a keyboard um, and I sat down and I started playing. Um, and so my mother being very talented, my brother being very talented, like my mother came in and started singing and I just started playing and followed her. Um, but then I was also, you know, whoever, whatever people believe in, what whoever your God is, um, you know, I was given the ability to read music um, so I could read music um, and I could play by ear. Um, so I stayed a lot in the jazz realm. Um, you know, my mother was a country western singer, so I played country western music. Um, 
I was a nightmare when I got into college um, for my piano professor and for my theory professors because, um, you know, I don't play with proper technique. Um, and I do theory so different than the rest of the world does, but it just comes naturally to me. So, In what um, ways? Because I, I love theory. Well, so, you know, our, I remember um, her name was Dr. Shirley Coolidge. Uh, short, she was as round as she was tall, amazing organist, like could play a pipe organ just beautifully. Her and her husband were very talented, but, you know, she was teaching, um, you know, going, just going through the basics of theory. And I would be like, well, but you can do it this way. And it's the same thing. And she's like, yes, but you have to do it this way, Sean. And I'm like, no, you can also do it this way, um, which is, I think, where my whole thing, like not realizing it, my whole thing about being a disruptor and being an innovator is because I looked at music different and could do music different than what they were teaching it. Um, and so that was very frustrating um, to her. Um, so I would hear chords and I could do chords, play chords differently and you know, and say, well, you can structure them this way and you can structure them that way. And she's like, yes, but you need to learn the basics. Isn't that interesting? You would, you would think that music is one of the spaces in which you have to be as creative and open-minded as possible, especially as a teacher, to be able to advance the field, right? Like that's how jazz was invented. That's how reggae was invented. That's how classical music was invented back in the day, right? Like you, to change the genre, you had to accept that there were, there was no such thing as normal, but yeah, your but, experience was they were trying to still fit you into a box. Well, and so many times in, in universities, in music schools, um, you know, they, it's all classically trained. And I appreciate it. Listen, I have friends that are amazing classical piano players. Um, and I remember being in college and my determination was um, to play Rachmaninoff. Like, because I felt like even in the classical genre, Rachmaninoff was just different. Um, and I just struggled with it. Like, I, I could never play classical at the way that those that were classically trained and yet I was a frustration to them because, you know, they would sit down and start singing and I would just play and, you know, make them come alive. And they were like, God, I just wish I could do that. When I was the one sitting there going, you know, God, like I can read it on paper. I just I can't make it happen the way that others um, did. And so, um, yeah, so studied, studied it in college. Um I'm very thankful for it. Um, what's funny is that time in my life when uh, I did go to work for Disney, I kind of set music aside for probably 10 years. Like, I was burned out on it. Um, I had lost the joy of it, um, and I wanted the joy back. Um, and it was, it was really funny because, it, like, I dabbled back into it. Um, this is... 2005 and it took till the pandemic um for me to really find the joy in music again um and 
we made a decision during the pandemic to buy a piano. Um, so I have um, a beautiful uh, parlor grand that sits right behind my, or in front of my desk. And um, during the pandemic, I played it every day. Um, and so. it's amazing. I yeah. was going to ask you if you had picked it back up. I, I felt a similar drought, like in the past, I guess I'm 24. My, I played pretty much every day until I was 19 or so. And then I was, you know, writing an album and all these things. And then work got in the way and other things. And I don't know about you, but when I sit down at a piano and just start playing, it's like the rest of the world disappears. Like there's just no, there's nothing that's stressful anymore. Yeah. Yeah, I I love it when um, no one's home and I can just sit and, um, as many people say, bang on the piano um, because I play the piano very hard. um, And yeah, it's. It, well, if you're playing Rachmaninoff, then hell yes. Don, 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 Right. Like, yeah. so that's the, um, so yeah. So, um. Now I want to yeah. hear you sing. <laughs> well, that's been a long time, even, <laughs> even for us to do that. Um, oh man. Yeah. That's, that's beautiful though. And it's, do your kids, are your kids into music as well? So, um, my daughter loves music. Um, okay. But being adopted, um, I think her birth mother and birth father were tone deaf. Um, so she loves to sing and she will sing to the top of her lungs. Um, and I just, because um, I have perfect pitch, it, um, I just, I pray and endure through it many times. And we encourage her. We finally, a couple of years ago, sat down with her, and I'm one of those people that believe about bringing it straight forward. Like, we are not the family that plays games with our kids and lets our kids win. We, you know, I am not the father, or my wife's not the mother who believes everyone should get a participation ribbon. Um, and we finally sat down with her a couple of years ago and just said, Baby girl, God has given you many talents. But one of those that he did not give you was to sing. Um, <laughs> and My parents did the same thing with me and gymnastics. <laughs> well, so hers is gymnastics. Oh, okay. So, you know, the girl can go out there and do seven round off, you know, handsprings and not think anything of it. Um, you know, when I can't even go out and do a cartwheel um, or you know, and so that was, we just had that conversation with her. And it was funny because even um, recently we were starting to schedule for her um, eighth grade year. And she said, hey, I think I want to do girls course for a semester. And I said, can we talk about that? Like, remember we had this conversation? Um, she's like, yeah, but daddy, I want to do it. And so we have not come to a complete agreement on that yet. Um, I don't want to to kill her dreams of it, but um, yeah. Um, you know, it's funny you say that because I have watched, you know, I, I used to teach voice when I was in high school and I used to watch some people who could barely hold a tune become fairly proficient singers if they put, you know, a ton of effort into it. Now, granted, you watch some of the older, you know, American Idol auditions and think, gosh, someone just needed to just tell that person 
you can't sing, right? Like someone just needed to be honest, but at the same time, and I don't know, maybe this is your parenting philosophy too. I think it's interesting when a parent is advocating to focus on a child's strengths and really not focusing on the weaknesses, right? Like not saying you have to go to chorus because you suck at singing. Instead, it sounds like you guys are saying, you're great at gymnastics. You're great at this area. Focus on that. And the child's the one saying, no, mom, dad, I really want to, you know, hone this skill. Or I really, maybe it's, I want to be with my friends who are also doing chorus. So I, I just think it's interesting how, you know, sometimes when the child's the one saying, I want to develop this weakness, sometimes you see them, their creative brains just explode in a way and they actually get decently good. One example is my, um, my friend, Jimmy Clifton, he was very mediocre artist, like very mediocre. And I haven't told him this, but when he first started releasing, you know, videos of him playing guitar and singing here and there or whatever, I was just thinking, why is he spending so much time on music? Like he's not great. The stuff he's putting out, he's written hundreds of songs. I don't like any of them. Well, then out of the blue, he came out with an, a complete album last year, completely out of the blue. And the album is fantastic. I find myself singing the songs. I find myself clinging to them. I find myself, uh, they're just, they get stuck in my head and they're good. And I just wondered, I still have yet to ask him, what were you hiding for, for two years? Because it was just, it was like there was no foundation, no groundwork. And granted, I am a very critical musician because I don't have perfect pitch, but I have relative pitch. And I am very critical of musicians, a very, very high standard. And I just, anyway, it, it was just completely out of the blue. And I thought, you know what? How much more could I implement this in my personal life of the things that, you know, my dreams, my passions, like you said, you know, firm believer in following your passions. Sometimes you're not good at your passions, right? They may be something you really like, but you may not be naturally gifted in them. But if the if the hard work is put in, you can actually get somewhere. You know, it's all it seems to be more about consistency and and learning and hard work than natural talent in so yeah. many cases. Um, so I, yeah, I, and I let think me know what you're doing what, with your daughter. You, you know, it's funny because I think that's what frustrated my college professors is <laughs> yeah. I didn't have to work at music, you know, and even some of my friends, they were just frustrated with me because, you know, we would get theory assignments and I would have them done in 10 minutes and they would be struggling to get through them. And I'm like, why don't you understand this? Did you like figured bass? Oh yeah. <sighs> You're one of those people who likes figure base. Oh, gosh. I well, hate so, that shit. So, what, <laughs> so what's funny, the reason I struggled playing classical music is I'm a pianist, and this will help you understand why I like figured bass even more. I'm a pianist whose left hand is my predominant hand, not my right hand. Um, so... Anything to do with figured bass, anything to do with bass, like, and talk about a nightmare. Talk about being in like a jazz combo or anything and having a piano player who hears bass lines that bass players don't hear. 
and I would play him on the piano. And then, you know, probably my biggest thing in church for our poor bass players were like, would you quit playing bass lines? Because we can't play them. And I'm like, I don't know how to not do that. Yeah, that's um, a very interesting skill because most pianists are predominantly because that's what you learn first right is is the right hand most typically all the fingerings right right that's where that's why i struggled so much in classical music yeah Um, because they tried to break me like i remember my freshman year um randall freeling dr randall freeling he was my piano teacher um he's like we have to start back at the basics you have to learn and I, my right hand could not do, just was not made for that. Um, but my left hand, man, give it to me and I can play it there. So it's well, just- this is a perfect illustration of how most colleges are going to produce students, especially in fields like music and art, who make good professors. Right. Because that's what they assume is the only career path you're going to have is to be a teacher. So why help a student explore the creative possibility outside of the of the system that is pre-constructed? Why do that? Because they're not they're, quote unquote, not going to have a career anywhere else unless they can learn the system. They can learn classically trained music. They can you know, they can learn theory in this particular Western way of understanding it. Right so that they can then be professors or teachers. Yeah. It, it seems like that's just a perfect illustration of what's happening in colleges everywhere. Music is just one example where it's this in the box, outdated way, outdated way of thinking to help protect, I assume, what they think is going to be a positive impact on the student so that one day that student can teach and also teach the method and teach the right way of doing it. Yeah, yeah. Um... It's funny having this conversation, looking back on it, like now it makes even more sense why I do what I do. Um, <laughs> yes. Yeah, so that, so tell me more now, now, not now that I get you, yeah. <laughs> I get you where know. Sean's coming from now of like wh- what created the disruptor and it hundred percent makes sense. You honestly kind of sound like, you know, when uh, Johann Sebastian Bach learned from his older brother and he surpassed his older brother's skill set. So his older brother got really mad and went and burnt up his music so that his younger brother couldn't exceed his skill set. That's kind of what like the picture I'm getting from you and and your professors. Yeah, and, well, it, and what's kind of funny about that is my brother was very frustrated with me um, because he was a freshman in college and I was in sixth grade um, and I could do his theory. Um, oh, I, I'd be, I'd be damn frustrated too. as a sibling. <laughs> right? um, and you know, and my brother is incredibly talented. My brother. Now you asked me to sit down and write a song with lyrics. It's like pounding my head. You tell my brother, write a song about such and such and such. And in 10 minutes, he's written the lyrics and, the melody and he's done it um you know so he's incredibly incredibly talented um yeah um you know so that's i think theory, that's, you know yeah i think that's you know when i look back you know then you know i went to work for disney got to see such a different world you know and it's funny so because what? i actually i actually had this realization this last year that i didn't realize how spoiled i was um, 
like when it comes to corporate America and it comes to those things, Hannah, because uh, my first corporate job was working for the Walt Disney Company. Um, like, who does that, right? Like, because I, you know, I had worked in churches and we lived in Orlando and, you know, my wife said to me, why don't you go to work for Disney? Um, and so I did. And, you know, I spent seven years at Disney um, and learned a culture that not many people get the privilege of learning. Right. And so absolutely. Um, I just thought everyone did that. Mm-hmm. I thought every company was like that. Um, and they sure was, aren't. <laughs> yeah. No. And then when I was recruited out, I was recruited into healthcare. Um, but I was recruited into uh, Humana, which was a company going through a huge transformation and cultural shift. So, so much of what I loved about Disney was starting to happen at Humana and those freedoms were happening. Um, and I was on a team that was part of making that happen at Humana. Um, and so I was back in that zone of like, okay, everyone's like this. Um, and then, you know, that's when I went to become chief innovation officer um, at Xavier University here in Cincinnati. And um, that's when my aha went, mm, nope, not what everybody's like. Um, and, you know, went into higher ed and had a real eye opener of how bad cultures can be. Well, there's the full circle from our conversation about college to you being chief innovation officer at a university. So let's go back to the to this first kind of step out of the church world, which I would, I'd love some time to pick your brain about that experience too, because I, I also grew up in the church. Um, I have a very Gen Z, I would say, oriented view of, of the way that the, the modern church is operating and, you know, how far we've come and um, in both positive ways and negative ways. But anyway, I'd, if we have time, I'd love to get into that. But the Imagineer role. So talk me through that. Like, how in the world did you get into that type of position at Disney World when there's very few? And what does a day, what does your day look like when you're an imagine? Yeah. So um, I remember I worked for the cruise line, um, had an amazing leader. Her name was Diane Mullinex and she had mentored me. And this position, um, I heard this position was opening up. No surprise, Hannah, you know, I'm a networker. Um, and so I had heard this position was opening up and um, I apply and I said, I'm going to apply for this, um, you know, because Cruise Line was a great spot to be at at Disney. Let me tell you, great spot to be at. Um, and uh, but my leader, she was so good. Um, she sat down with me and she said, Sean, I don't get it and I don't know why. Um, But her leader, her name was Daisy, um, and her leader above her, Joanne, they're like, they don't like you. Um, And she's like, you will never go any place here. Like, they will stop that from happening. So first off, I love the fact that I had such a great relationship with my leader. 
and mentor that she just sat down and was completely honest with me. And so I said, okay, I'm going to start looking. Like, um, and I found out this position was coming open and I applied for it. And honestly, Hannah, um, other than, again, going back to whoever you believe in, I believe it was just, it was meant to happen. Um, that position had 700 people apply um, for it. Um, they dwindled it down, interviewed, I think, 50 in the first round, um, then took it to 10, and then took it to three. Um, and this was like over three months. Like, I had forgot about, like, the position. and really had started looking for other positions. Um, and I got the call and they said, you know, we want you to come be a part of this team. Um, and so within a finance role, um, so I was in finance at Disney my whole time and I went and, um, that's when I learned, um, about design thinking, human centered design. That's when I learned about what true collaboration feels like. Um, because you're part of a team and you're part of a a group that works hand in hand together and decisions are made as a project team. Um, so I got to see amazing things happen and, and be a part of amazing projects, um, you know, and it's right when um, it was right when Bob Iger was taking over and had just taken over and was really um, taking Disney to the next level to be an entertainment company. Um, you know, so I was there when we acquired Pixar. Um, you know, I was there when they decided to build Shanghai. Um, when they did all, when ESPN um, was bought and integrated into Disney. Like, I got to see all of that happen and be a part of so many of those amazing projects. Um, so how many Imagineers are there? You know, I don't know um, currently because they fluctuate. Um, but I think there's less in history. There's been less than a, like 2000. Oh, like in the whole history of the company? Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. So, so maybe, and maybe I just haven't read enough on this, but what is the scope of of, I guess, vision that Imagineers get to create or control. They're everything. So nothing, everything. Comes for, nothing comes to life at Disney that doesn't go through Imagineering. Did you work with, so you were on the finance side of Imagineering? Uh-huh. Okay. So you were putting together the, the, the budget pieces to make yeah. the actual vision yeah, so happen? Yes, you know, because it's obviously... Um, it's the creative piece. It's what I call, what they call from blue sky to implementation. Um, so it was really, um, you know, capital money coming in, you know, when the board decided, okay, we're going to spend this much money. Here's the budget. Um, then it was, you know, a project team managing that budget and making sure scope happened. And, uh, but we were part of the creative process too, which is what I loved. So you're like the VC firm inside of the Imagineering yep. division of Disney. 
Yep. Yep. So what, like what parts of the creative process do they involve the finance team in? The whole process. You're literally involved um, through the whole process from blue sky when the first creative things are happening to after it's been, you know, we used to talk about we, um, you know, when we would turn it over, Imagineering stayed part of it for like six more months um, just to make sure ride worked correctly and creative was done correctly. Um, you know, so like I was part of it when, you know, when Disney Wide World of Sports became Disney or ESPN Wide World of Sports. So that whole integration. Um, yeah, it didn't feel like a finance role, but yet you were very much in finance. I'm trying to picture how this would happen. So in terms of like your team, so let's take the ESPN example. So did they, did whomever come to your team and say, Hey, we're, we're purchasing this, you know, new division. It's time to do X, Y, Z with it. Like what, what did that look like? Where, how would your team get on board? Yeah, once, well, it, and it actually became, you know, once the board, you know, the board of directors had to approve these integrations um, and then a project team was put together. So there was a project leader. Um, and then with that, depending on whoever or whatever the project was, you know, you would have a construction lead, you would have a creative lead, you would have a finance lead, you would have, you know, all those leads eight to nine in general um, would be, you know, the leads of those pro of that project. Um, so although I was in finance, I actually, in a kind of way, also dotted line reported to these, you know, project leaders. Um, and I met, you know, so we met as we met as project teams, mm. um, you know, weekly. Um, sometimes as we got closer to, you know, going live, you know, daily. Um, and where you had those discussions. Um, and, you know, my job was to make sure we stayed on budget or if we needed to tweak something, um, where were we going to pull that budget from? What were we not going to do? Or, you know, and I loved it because we gave, you know, at Disney, they gave such uh, a freedom to the creative team to go create, um, you know, but then once we got all those numbers on paper, then we had to make decisions, right? Because we still had a budget, you know, people, people taught, you know, people say, well, Disney has endless amount of money. Well, no, um, you know, they do have money, you know, but, you know, in the state of Florida in Orlando, they employ, I think I heard recently, like 80,000 people just in Orlando. Um, so there's budgets. And my job was to make sure we stayed on budget. And when we didn't, what were we going to do? And where were we going to give and take? Um, but again, it wasn't what was hard for me going into another corporate world is finance people had such a bad stigma against them because they're the bad people. You know, they're like the law lawyers, right? Um, stay away from finance. They're nothing but bad people. Um, and I never experienced that at Disney. Well, that was one of my, so I host on Tuesdays, 
I host a pre-show conversation with Gen Zers. So I ask them, I, I tell them, hey, Sean, this guy, Sean Nason's coming on the show. What questions do you want to ask him about his work or whatever? And one of the questions that came up on this segment was, what was your what was your life like, your transition like from working at a company like Disney as an Imagineer and trying to take those same, you know, concepts and ideas and that journey into a different company? And what were some of the, you know, stumbling blocks or things that shocked you after coming from a Disney background? Well, yeah, I mean, the big things that shocked me is that it wasn't that every culture wasn't like that. I just thought, I really thought companies just worked like that. Um, and, you know, this whole realm of employees having bad experiences in a company, like, I didn't know that. I Listen, I had an amazing experience as a cast member at Disney. Amazing. Um, and people say, well, why did you leave Disney? Um, and I'm very open and honest to this. People also know that Disney doesn't pay the highest. They don't have to. Right? Like the day that That's I resigned, the, the day that I resigned my position, Hannah, from Imagineering, within the end of, by the end of that day, my leader had something like 200 emails from people internally within Disney wanting my position. You know, and it had just, I like, I had just resigned. Um, hadn't even left yet. Um, but how Disney takes care of you and how their culture is, you know, um, I would still have worked there but my wife wanted to stay home and raise our daughter. Um, and again, what I loved is I went to my leader, um, our CFO, and said, hey, this is the situation. I need to make this much money to cover my wife's salary or I'm going to have to do something else. And he's like, give me a week. And he came back and he said, this is what we can do um, if if this isn't acceptable, what do we need to do to help you go find another position? Um, and I've been called twice, two or three times um, since I left there to go back to the company in some uh, manner. Um, but it's not been the right fit and financially we couldn't do it. Um, so my biggest takeaway, I mean, that's why today, Mofi, my company exists, is helping organizations Focus on employee engagement, employee experience. If you focus on that, your business numbers will come. I'm a firm believer in that. 100%. Uh, no, so, so, so true. And I know, so when you wrote Kiss Your Dragons, and, and, and I know you wrote it with Michael Harper, and there was a third contributor. Robin right? Glasgow. Robin Glasgow. A very dear well. friend of mine. Yeah. Yeah. So when you wrote that, what... What was the impetus for coming together on that project? Like, what, what was the case study? Because this is what I love about this work. Well, I think the case study was um, Robin and I had both come um, at a corporate um, 
and had done, you know, big, the big corporate gigs. Um, I had worked in church. Michael had worked in church and nonprofit. And we started to see this correlation um, around mindsets and then what we called our heart sets. Um, and who would have thought right at, you know, we wrote this during the pandemic when there was such a shift happening. Um, you know, Hannah, you shared with, with me, you know, personally, you're, you and your husband are going to go take a few months and just decompress, right? Like, we have had such a shift in the workplace um, that now the employee has the upper hand, um, for lack of better terms. You know, people aren't working for companies that don't treat them well or for leaders that don't treat them well. They are quitting and they will figure out what they need to do. Um, and so how do we get back to the heart of what people are? Um, and you know, and I've, in the book, I preach a very basic three point sermon. It's a sermon I have preached for 10 years and will preach for the rest of it. Um, and it's to the leaders to say, um, you need to learn to be transparent. Just be transparent with your people. Um, you need to build radical relationships with your people. Um, and then, you know, most importantly is you have to love people. Like, I don't understand how people become leaders if they don't like people. Um, you know, and that 80% of your day should be focused on the people that work on your team. Um, and 20% of your day should be focused on business. Um, that's a radical difference. Um, but you know, I'm really curious how you got to that, to that 80%. What's the, what's it based it, on? It was studying Disney and what Disney did. And, um, Lee Cockrell, um, who wrote a book called creating the magic. And he did our podcast with us on the combustion chronicles. Um, you know, he says that leaders need to be with their people. Not like if you hire right, I don't need to be in the day-to-day -day decisions um, because, you know, that's, that's a big Disney thing too, Hannah, is push your decision rights to the most common denominator. So how do you get the people that interact with your guests at Disney the most equipped to do what they need to do for the guests? Um, you know, so if you work with a, if, if you're in guest services at Disney, um, that's an hourly position. It may be salary now, but when I was there, it was an hourly position. But you have the right to comp a family's whole vacation if they've had a bad experience. Well, what other industries, you know, what other companies give people those those freedoms, right? So if you've pushed that down to the most common denominator to the guest, then as a leader, then you're focusing on developing and building these relationships with your team and helping them achieve what they want to do. Um, and that's what I saw. Like I said, I talked about Diane Mullinex. She was amazing. Um, you know, she wasn't involved in the day to day. She knew her team and she was helping each of us achieve what we needed to achieve. So, yeah, absolutely. I, I could not agree more. And how much more if an hourly employee is being empowered 
with that type of decision-making authority, how much more if you have a full-time, say, say, uh, engineer or a full-time uh, marketing manager? And how, how many times do we see organizations, and I know you see this all the time, where even that level of position doesn't have the authority to act on something that's as financially uh, large as an entire Disney <laughs> vacation for a family, you know? And, and, and so, so when you were transitioning from, from that world as an Imagineer into healthcare, what were some of the shifts you had to start seeing for you to begin to feel like that mindset was getting embraced? Well, again, I was really fortunate when I went to Humana because Humana had just got a new CEO, um, or the new CEO transitioning, um, and Bruce Broussard was coming in. And they were making a decision at that time to be a very member-centric organization. So they were rewriting the values for the company. They were, re, you know, they were standing up consumer experience work, member experience work. Um, so and the reason I was hired was because I was from Disney and I had that mindset and was to bring that in there. So when I went into Humana, I kept that same mindset and I was really fortunate. Um, my big aha of transition was when I went to higher ed. Um, and I, when I realized not every culture is like this and not every way is like this and not every leader is like this. Um, mm -hmm. And higher ed's a difficult, difficult industry to work in um, because you have um, a very, what I would call a deep divide between the academic piece of a university and the administration piece of the university. Um, and when you have, you know, I, I tell people my biggest learning and mistake in my whole career, my life is when I stood up in front of two or 300 people and was asked, what would you do to innovate higher education? And I said, I would do away with tenure. Um, and 80% of the audience had tenure. Um, and they... Gosh, you had balls to do that. Well, I didn't realize that 80% of the audience had tenure, so I was probably better off. I probably would have still said it. Um, but from that moment on, I had a bullseye on my back. Um, and to this day, um, I'm recently speaking at an education conference and I would say the same exact thing. The thing that needs to happen within higher education today is get rid of tenure. It's driving the cost of education ridiculously high because we have to pay these professors who sit on their ass and do nothing but teach their three classes. Um, not all professors are like that, and I'm not putting that out there. But, you know, I said to I remember saying to our provost and our president, give me tenure as the chief innovation officer and I'll go out and do some really wicked cool shit. Um, but we had professors who, you know, it was entitled to them um, and you can't do it. You know, so many of those bylaws and institutions are set up um, and we're just going to see it. Um, I think we're getting ready to see a, a big collapse in higher ed, especially after this pandemic. 
you know. No kidding. No, uh, no kidding. I actually have an you know, interview. In years, realized mm-hmm. we don't have to have a four-year education to make good money and be happy. 100%. Um, Over 60% of Gen Z. Debt, right? And we're not going to go into debt. Yeah. It's a pretty simple answer, and I agree. Institutions collapsing, and so I want to respect your time. I know you've it's it's two minutes past four, so if you got to run, <laughs> you got to run. Um, but we we need to continue this conversation because this is absolutely a this is going to be a defining factor. I one hundred percent believe of the next five years, next ten years, watching the 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 traditional systems of education collapse and watching you know the rise of the agile way of learning and thinking and apprenticing and we're we're returning back to the 1800s and your your music example is 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 a great illustration of that of your experience again from beginning of college to now you know the working in a, in a higher ed situation before exiting to start your own company <laughs> because why the hell not after after that sort of um, experience with higher ed yeah well, I would love to come back and talk more with you about it, Hannah. Um, but so thank you. Um, um, I think we're on the same page. So. 100%. Awesome. All right. Well, All right. See well, you soon. All right. Bye. Thanks for listening to the Native Digital, Native Analog Show. If you enjoyed this episode, I'd really appreciate it if you would subscribe, leave a rating and review, and tell your friends. If you're looking to connect and talk more about attracting and retaining Native Digitals, you can reach me at hannahgwilliams.com. Thanks again, and I'll see you next time. <laughs>